Let's turn in the Scriptures again to the book of Acts, chapter 6. One of the things that we don't fully appreciate as users of the King James Version is the, the power of the language. We, we take it very much for granted. Um, I read a book just recently by Dr. David Allen. We, we knew Dr. David Allen uh, from his days as deputation speaker of the Trinitarian Bible Society. And he wrote a book some years ago called The Jewel in the King's Crown. And that book contains a history, really, of the King James Version and why it was translated at that particular time. And he gives an insight into the various translators and the kinds of men that they were. It's very interesting, very fascinating. But something that I took out of that was something that we have at the very beginning of our scriptures that we have seen over and over and over again. Perhaps we haven't thought about it as deeply as we should. The Holy Bible containing the Old Testaments, translated out of the original tongues and with the former translations diligently compared and revised by His Majesty's special command, appointed to be read in churches. So one of the reasons why this translation was authorized by the king was that it might be read in churches. And one of the, the tasks that translators had was to produce a translation that would read well when read publicly. And that's one of the reasons why King James English is perhaps a style of English that's all of its own. Uh, you'll never get it in another translation of Scripture, and you'll never get it in another book in the English language because it wasn't even in the language that was commonly spoken regularly at that time. Uh, the, the, the words were chosen in such a way that it would read well, and it would memorize well. And, and that's one of the reasons why this version is so unique and so, and so precious. And, and we should appreciate it as it is read, and we should appreciate it as we read it, and we should think about the words, because in a most amazing way, the language has given a real dignified voice to the Word of God. Let's just think about the words as we read here from Acts chapter 6. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, 
and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and, per, and, Parmen, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the multitude of the disciples, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Amen. We know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Let us seek the Lord for prayer. <coughs> Father in heaven, we thank you. We can come to you. We can worship you. We pray for your help as we examine your word today. We pray for the the power and the blessing and the fullness of your spirit. Father, I pray the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Two weeks ago, we thought about the principles of Presbyterian church government because the principles of Presbyterian church government, they underpin and provide the biblical foundation for a church membership and indeed for the offices within the church, whether those be the offices of teaching elder, ruling elder, or the office of deacon, or as we would describe it, the work of the committee man. Today we're going to look at what we can learn from the first deacons. And part of my remit, part of my responsibility in the period leading up to the election is to talk about the qualifications of the office bearer. In this case, we're going to think of the qualifications of the deacon, the qualifications of the person that serves on the committee. And we're going to use as a start here uh, the, the first deacons that we read of in Scripture from the book of Acts chapter 6. And this is important for a couple of reasons. It's important for us all because what we're reading of here is Christian character. Uh, we're not merely reading about the character, the qualifications of men that are called to serve, but this is Christian character, and we should all aspire and strive after Christian character. But for you as membership, uh, you need help, you need direction as you are seeking before God to appoint men to serve in this role. And I trust that what I say today will have, be of some help and some assistance to you where that is 
concerned. Uh, the, the first place something is mentioned in the Scripture is always a good place to go to, and that's the reason why we're turning here to Acts chapter 6. So, relating to the first deacons, the first thing we're going to think about is their calling. These men had a very particular calling. They had a, an immense responsibility. They were called to bring harmony to a divided and to a confused church. In Acts chapter 6, we have a church that was struggling, a church that was facing a very grave difficulty. And it is amazing that should have been the case, because this was a church that had known the blessing of God. The church had grown at a phenomenal rate. As a result of this great revival at Pentecost, the period that flowed on from Pentecost, some scholars have reckoned that there, there could have been upwards of 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem at this time. So this was not a, a congregation of 100 or 200 people or 500 people. This was a, a huge body, a huge organization. Perhaps 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem. So God was blessing. The work of God was going forward. Souls were being saved. And yet still there was problems. And in God's work there will always be problems. There will always be difficulties. It's part of the nature of humanity. It's the nature of the world we live in. And some have described this problem that erupted as being a growing pain. The church was growing. And as a result of the growth, pressures were created. Now, the pressure point in this instance was the division between these people that are called Grecians in chapter 6, verse 1, and Hebrews. There was a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Within the church, there was this desire to look after the poor, to look after the widows, those that were destitute. You see, there was no social welfare system in those days. The state didn't help those that were suffering, that couldn't earn. In fact, that's why you read about people begging. The streets were filled with people begging, people that had nothing. The, the welfare system was, was almsgiving. It was inspired by religion, by faith. The Jews gave alms to the poor. It was their way of worshiping God. You helped those that were poor, and the poor had to go and ask for it. It was a, a difficult, humbling experience. And so when the Christian church was formed, the church took on itself the role of helping with the poor amongst their number. In this case, it was the widows. But there were two groups within the church. There was the Grecians and there was the Hebrews. Now, the, the Grecians, now the technical name for the Grecians uh, were the, the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews were the Greek-speaking Jews. The Greek-speaking Jews belonged to a group of Jews known as the Diaspora. And the diaspora were Jews that were scattered across the world. The Greek word diaspora, it means to sow seed, to scatter seed, to scatter. And these people have been scattered across the world as a result of the, the Babylonian exile and other exiles. The Jews had been scattered across the world. It's one of the uh, unique things about Judaism. The people of the Jewish faith have been scattered across the world, still are in many ways. And some of them have returned, of course, to Israel where they have made that their home. But there are still many, many Jews in various countries 
of the world. And so there were these Jews that were Greek speakers. How did they end up in Jerusalem? They probably ended up in Jerusalem because they had been in Jerusalem for the the Feast of Pentecost. They had been converted and they decided to stay because they were following Christianity and the apostles were there. And this was the center of the Christian church and so they chose to stay. That probably is the reason why they were in uh, Jerusalem. So you had the Greek-speaking Jews, but then you also had the Hebrew-speaking Jews. Now, these were the Jews who traditionally belonged to the district within Jerusalem or within Judea, and they didn't speak Greek. That wasn't their first language. Their first language was either Hebrew or probably Aramaic, which was a variant of Hebrew. And so this was their language. And so these two groups of people, they spoke different languages, and they had different cultures and different backgrounds. And that created its own pressures. And so these Greek-speaking Jews who had become Christians, they murmured against the Hebrew Christians. And probably the Hebrew Christians were more numerous. Probably they were in the ascendancy. And they said, look, our widows are being neglected. You're not looking after our widows. You're, you're making a difference here. You're looking after your own widows and not ours. And we know that that kind of thing, whenever it gets into a group of people, favoritism, prejudice, it is explosive. And so the apostles were faced with this situation that was absolutely explosive. It threatened to tear the church of Christ apart. And so they had to think of a way of sorting this problem out. It could have been the widows were deliberately neglected. Probably, as was more likely the case, it was something accidental. It was just a perception, but we know perceptions are real. So the apostles, they came to this conclusion that they were doing too much. They were taking the responsibility of feeding all of these widows themselves. They were gathering in the collections. They were looking after it. And they realized, look, it's too much for us. We're not getting this right. And so they said in verse 2, it is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. We, We shouldn't be setting God's Word aside in order to do this work of serving. Work of serving is important, but we have to study God's Word. We have to pray. and We can't do everything. We have to be set free to get involved in the spiritual side of the work. There needs to be men to do this work. D.L. Moody said, It is better to put ten men to work than to do the work of ten men. Delegating. And so this was the decision that the, the, the apostles took. It was a practical decision. It was a, it was a common sense decision. Now, they didn't get any special revelation from God. Look, you need to do this. But it just made sense. God gives us common sense. When that common sense comes into the heart of a Christian man, Christian woman, well, that common sense takes us a long way. We have to follow those kinds of instincts. And so the apostles were following these instincts. Let's use the men that we have to do the work. But they had to be men that the people themselves chose. The people had to do the choosing. And this was to inspire confidence. If they had have just come and said, here's seven men, Well, it was the apostles that in some way had been accused of neglecting the Greek widows. They would have been the ones 
who were choosing the seven men, and the whole situation would have been challenged. It's not being proper. Process wouldn't have seemed right. So he said to the multitude, you choose the men, and the men that you choose will do this work, and they will be appointed over this business. And of course, there you can see the beginnings of Presbyterian church government, the, the congregation acting, working together, calling men from within their own ranks to do an important work, to do the work of service, to do the work of, of deacon. And while the, the title deacon is not found here, the work of the deacon is found here. It was a practical work, the work of the committee in our congregation and in Presbyterian church government looks after the practical things of the work, looks after the, the, the finances, uh, looks after the, the practical affairs of the, the buildings, so on and so forth. So this was a practical work. It was a practical ministry. Uh, the word deacon, it comes from the Greek diakonos. It means serve, to serve. And of course, Christ was the greatest deacon. Christ said the Son of Man didn't come to, to minister unto, to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve. The, the, the word is serve. The word is deacon. Christ was the greatest deacon. He came to serve, and he came to serve God's people. And these men were called by the people themselves to serve God's people. Now, there's something very interesting about, about these men. It seems that they were all Greek Christians. It seems they weren't Hebrew Christians. In fact, each, each one of these names that have been pointed out by the biblical scholars, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Par, uh, Parmenas, and Nicholas, it would seem that, that they all came from a Greek-speaking background. None of them were Hebrews. So what, uh, the first deacons were, belonged to that group of people that that felt that they had been disenfranchised, they had been neglected, there was prejudice against them. And it seems that the, the Hebrew Christians had been happy to step back and allow these Greek Christians to sort their own affairs out, and these men would have this office. It was a really interesting way of dealing with the problem. It shows a lot of humility, humility in the part of the apostles. It also shows a lot of humility on the part of the Hebrew Christians, and it did sort the problem out. These men were called through the Holy Ghost working in the apostles, through the Holy Ghost working in the hearts of the congregation. These people were called to do a very specific, very practical work, work of service. And whenever you as a congregation will meet to elect Deacons, in our church, you through God will be calling men to do this work, as these men were called. But secondly, let's think about their, their character. You will notice in verse 3 that the apostles gave a command, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men. They were to appoint seven. Why they were to appoint seven, I, I'm not sure. But they were to appoint seven. 
but they had to be seven men. This was not a work for the, the ladies to do. And in our denomination, we believe that the work of leadership within the church is a work for the men. That doesn't mean that the ladies are despised. It means the ladies have a different role, a different function in the work of God. And that was the case in the New Testament church. Wherever you read of the office bearer, we always read that the office bearer is, is a man. But there was plenty of good work that the ladies did within the early church. Lots of good work. In fact, read about some of the ladies. Read about Priscilla. I was reading just t- this morning about Priscilla and Aquila and the work that they did in helping Apollos. And it was a work that had eternal value. And Priscilla is always mentioned in relation to her husband, which tells me she played quite a role there. You have Lydia, the founder of the church at Philippi, the first church in the, the continent of Europe. You have Phoebe, the, the letter carrier. You have John Mark's mother. She left her home available for work of God and for prayer. And so there were ladies that were, were used and had a tremendous role in the early New Testament church. So the early New Testament church did not despise ladies. In fact, ladies were given greater dignity by the Christian church than they were ever given under the Roman Empire because the Romans were particularly demeaning towards ladies. We'll be turning in a few moments to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I want to show you something from 1 Timothy chapter 3 here, just on this aspect of ladies and their importance within God's work, albeit it is not to hold office. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the verse 11. Verse 11 is a very interesting verse because the translators of the authorized version have given the impression that this relates to the wife of the deacon. But it doesn't have to relate to the wife of the deacon. In fact, it probably almost certainly doesn't refer to the wife of the deacon. It refers to a Christian woman generally, her importance within the work of God. And yes, he does talk about the qualifications of the bishop or the overseer. He then talks about the qualifications of the deacon, the one that serves. And then in the midst of the qualifications of the deacon, you have this little almost parenthesis, verse 11. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slander, sober, faithful in all things. And, and you will see the words must there are in italics. They do not appear in the, the Greek language. And the translators put that in to try and make some sense of it. And it gives the impression that this is the wife of the, the deacon. However, the word wife here doesn't necessarily mean wife. It can also mean woman. Certainly in connection with a man, it can mean the wife of the husband. But essentially the word means woman. Even so must the woman be grave, not slander, sober, faithful, in all things. And what Paul, I believe, is, is teaching here, that, that there is a work for Christian women in the work of God, in the church of Christ. This is the character that, 
They are to be have grave, serious, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. And of course, we do appreciate the ladies for the work that they do, the work that they do uh, in, in the Sunday school amongst the children. And I, I think there is a greater role, greater work for ladies within the work of God. I, I, I know speaking as a pastor, I think there is a, a work for ladies to do in reaching other ladies, a work for ladies to do in pastoring ladies in a way that men could not do. So I do think there's a work for godly women within the work of God that perhaps we haven't explored as fully as we should. And I speak of the evangelical church generally there, but that does not mean that our ladies should be in the, in the committee or in the session or, or, or in the ministry. The Scriptures do not teach that. And so you will notice, first of all, there had to be seven men. Now, these seven men, what kind of men did they have to be? They had to be of honest report. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. So they had to be men of good character. Good character. And that is the point that the apostles made. As you choose these men, choose men of good character. Now, coming back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read about this character, the character of the deacon. There's some words used, important words, but as I pointed out at the outset, this is Christian character. Nor is the apostle teaching here that these men must be super Christians. There's no super Christians. There's no super Christian in the pulpit. There's no super Christian in the pew. We're only sinners saved by grace. We all have our weaknesses and, and we have our struggles and we have our trials and We've got to look to God for strength and for help, and we've got to pray that this Christian character will be formed within us. So the first word that is used is grave. It just means serious. A person that's serious about life and about the things of God. It doesn't mean you can't have a smile on your face. It doesn't mean you can't have a joke or can't be jolly. We need that in life too, but where many of the great issues of life are concerned, well, they're grave, things of God. It's a seriousness, so there needs to be a, a serious attitude. Not double-tongued. There's a good phrase, not double-tongued. The person that's serious will never be double-tongued. Always a person that, you know what they're saying. They're honest in their speech, and the way they articulate things. Not given to much wine. Now, I can see that being used by people who say that it's not necessary for a Christian to be a teetotaler. I can see somebody saying here, well, it's not that you're not to be given to wine, you're not to be given to much wine. So you can drink wine as long as you don't overindulge and become drink and become drunk. But is that really what the apostle is saying? I know there's a whole discussion, a whole debate that goes on about alcohol and Roman days and what that consisted of and what that was. I'm not going to get into all of that now, but I do believe with all of my heart that the Bible commends the teetotaling position. Whenever the 19th century came along and more modern methods of, of producing alcoholic drinks were coming about and you had the spirits and, and, and you had all of those things that were so much stronger and alcohol was becoming such a major problem. Christians came to the decision, look, this alcohol is such an evil thing. It's such a wicked thing. It has a potential to ruin homes, to ruin families. 
take a man's wage packet, it's the only thing we can do is not touch this stuff at all. And it, it was a good decision. And it was a decision that we don't just find within Protestant circles. We found it also in the 19th century within Roman Catholic circles as well. People came to see, look, there's a real wickedness in, in, in alcohol and the damage it can do, how it can damage one's health, how it can damage one's reputation, how it can lead a man or a woman to do things they wouldn't normally do because the sense goes out completely and the inhibitions are dropped. And it, it's, it's such a wicked thing. And therefore, I think it goes without saying that we, we know that we do not consider it right for a Christian to touch alcohol, not considered right at all. And it's, it's one of the most, most evil things in society. You know, one can talk about the whole drugs epidemic as a serious problem, but the amount of people the police have to deal with, the amount of people end up in A&E as a result of alcohol, it's phenomenal. And it has made this society a much poorer place because of, uh, of the way that alcohol is regarded. And I say that to, to young people. You know, there's this idea that there's fun attached to it and you can have a laugh and, and all of the social aspect. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. It'll destroy your life. It'll lead you places you never thought you would end up. And it's such a wicked thing and we should hate it with all of our might. The wickedness of alcohol and the destructive nature of it. And that is a point we need to make here as we look at this. Not greedy of filthy liquor. This is somebody who, by character, he's not condemning somebody that's rich. He's condemning somebody that's greedy. Somebody that is just overly preoccupied with, with money. Uh, it has taken over the person's life. And that's what he's talking about here. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. He's talking here about a man's attitude to the Word of God and to the things of the gospel. He's a man who takes seriously the things of God, the mystery of the faith. He holds in a pure conscience. He's endeavoring to live for God in this wicked world. And that these also first be proved. Let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. And then you come down to this verse 12, after the little parenthesis in the verse 11 about the ladies. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. A couple of things about that verse. The husbands of one wife. It doesn't mean that the deacon must be a married man. It means that if he is married, he has one wife. That relates to the morality that's important in the office bearer. And the word well at the end, uh, Hebrew scholars say that refers to one's morality as well. And so you're talking here about a, a husband who's, who, who's, who's living morally well. And that really is what Paul is getting at, ruling their children in their own houses well. It means he's a good leader within his home and within his family. He's a good husband. He's a good father. Uh, if the Lord has blessed him, of course, with a wife and with children. And that's what the verse 12 is, 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 is getting at. And so there are good biblical pointers that I trust are helpful. They are challenging, uh, but they are helpful. And they are a very practical benefit when looking at the person who 
is to hold the office of the deacon. But as I said, this is Christian character, and it is a character that we all should aspire and strive after. Quickly, consecration, coming back to Acts chapter 6. Seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost. And what is the character of a man? What is the, the, how do we identify someone that's filled with the Holy Ghost? How do we, how do, we do that? Uh, full of the Holy Ghost. I, I know some people, they struggle with that. How can I know that I'm filled with the Spirit? Is it, is it presumptuous to say I'm filled with the Spirit? How, how can I say such a thing? How can I know such a thing? Well, it's all about surrender. The Holy Ghost fills people that are surrendered in heart. We say pious people, godly people, people that are surrendered to God and to the will of God. That's a mark of someone that's filled with the Spirit. And so we all need that surrender in our own hearts, that consecration. And it's about coming before God and praying to God, whatever you want for me, I'm willing to do. Wherever you lead me, I'm willing to follow. Whatever you want me to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to be harnessed by the the Spirit of God. And then there is the consideration here. They need to be considerate men. Verse 3 of Acts chapter 6 uses the word wisdom. Uses the word wisdom. The importance of being wise. And something that you should pray for all of those who hold office in the church that God would help us to be wise. Something I often pray for myself. Spirit, help me to be wise. And only that that help of the Spirit of God gives us that wisdom, that wisdom that we, that we need. And then there is a commendation here. I just want to encourage all of those that have served in the work of committee, all of those that will serve, all of those that are willing to serve. There is a commendation for the office of the, the deacon. You know, Stephen and, and Philip were mighty men of God. Yes, they, they had this task to, to, to be deacons, but God gave them a much wider work and a much wider ministry. And if they had not been willing to do this first work, they would not have been able to do the further things that they did. It became a stepping stone to other things. And God used them. Stephen was a man of faith and power. Philip was a leader of revival. And we're told in 1 Timothy 3, verse 13, For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say that of the office of the elder. It does say of the office of a deacon. They that have used the office well, purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So there is a particular blessing for those that sit in this office. And we appreciate those that have sit have sat that do sit and those that are engaged in this good work. Uh, these seven men that were appointed in Acts chapter 6 were a blessing to the whole work. We're told in verse 7 of Acts 6, the word of God increased, the multi- number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. God did a work. He blessed. And our prayer is that with this election, God will Bless these men as they come and sit amongst us in session and committee. And you be praying for that as well. Let's just pray and then Neville's going to lead us with a closing hymn. Father, we thank you for your word. May it be a blessing. May it be instructive to us. For Christ's sake, amen.
We're going to sing this closing hymn together, 440. You can see it up on the screen there. Teach me thy way, O Lord, teach me thy way. Let's stand together as we sing. Let's stand. meeting this morning. We pray that you'll bless your word to our hearts. We pray now, Lord, that you'll just take us home safely. We pray, Lord, for the meeting this evening, that you'll bless your word again. Help our pastor, Lord, even encourage him, Lord. Strengthen his voice, we pray. And Lord, bring us back, Lord, even to worship thee this evening, we pray. So, Lord, we just commit our ways on to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.